Welcome to Paytech Talk, the podcast about payments. Today's guest is Chris Skinner. Enjoy the show. Hey, Chris, welcome to Paytech Talk, where we normally talk about all things payments and payments technology. But today we're going to talk a little bit about the Banking Renaissance Conference, uh, which you've just spoken at. But first, can you just give our audience uh, a quick intro to who you are in case they're not already familiar with you? Uh, thanks, Elliot. Well, I'm Chris Skinner, and I'm Brett King's father. <laughs> <laughs> I've been around for an, a long time talking about technology innovation in financial services. Um, and it actually came around in the early 1990s because I did a presentation about the state of finance. And one of the feedback forms said, tell me something that I don't know. And I realized that the only thing we don't know is the future. So ever since then, I've spent all of my time immersed in looking at the future of financial services and specifically how technology is changing finance. So if you haven't read one of my 17 business books or five children's books, where have you been? Speaking of the future of banking, at the Banking Renaissance Conference, you just gave a talk about digital transformation. You gave a keynote on that, I believe. And you also chaired a panel on the same topic. What were the highlights of those uh, those presentations? Well, the main thing is that I've been looking at banking for so long that I understand banks will never disappear, even though some people would like to think that they will because we don't like banks. And the reason we don't like banks is because they control our money and money controls our lives. So everything is related. And the fact that banks have been around for over 500 years controlling our money is because they are linked to governments. So the issue right now with banks is that they need to be truly digital and they don't, in most institutions, understand what that means. They think it means digital is a channel and there's no such thing as a digital channel. That's ridiculous. You have to have digital at the heart, not as an add-on. And so where I come from is saying, how do you reimagine the organization that's been around for hundreds of years to be digital at its heart? And that's what digital transformation is all about. And I have written about this many times, but Doing Digital was the book that came out a couple of years ago where I interviewed banks like JP Morgan Chase, ING, uh, BBVA, DBS, and got lots of insights into how they were actually practically doing that change to turn their organization around from being analog to digital. Uh, it's not easy, and it's something that's challenging all organizations, but some are doing it better than others. And if you want to see it in a different context, just look at the position between, for example, Walmart and Amazon. And... Um, Hopefully your listeners are familiar with Walmart, a massive physical organization for grocery distribution that came out of America. And now Amazon is um, the upstart that's challenging them. So we're seeing this in every aspect of our lives. And that's a great answer. What does having digital at the heart of a bank actually mean? I think when people hear like the term digital, they think of, you know, like tech, AI, data mass architecture, automation, machine learning, blockchain. But is this, these, are these technical elements really the most important parts of uh, digital transformation efforts? Not at all. Uh, it's got nothing to do with technology. It's to do with culture and mindset. 
and how the organization thinks and works. And so there is a technological sort of structure, which is to do with replacing branches with apps that link to devices through the Internet of Things. It's replacing infrastructure that before was between front and back office with open platforms and ecosystems of APIs that are open in an open banking and payment structure and replacing back office that was the headquarters with a highly intelligent data analytics system that can leverage customer intimacy and relationship. But that part is the technological part, but it has to start before that with the leadership and the executive team of the institution converting all of their people to understand that digital relationships and structures is where the bank or the financial institution has to be now instead of physical structures. So most banks in the European and American markets are getting rid of branches. I say European and American markets because there's actually quite a lot of parts of the world that are opening new bank branches because they didn't have enough. But in Europe and America, we're closing down branches. And what do you do with the people who have client relationships in branches? The tellers, the managers, you put them in on social media, you move them and retrain them, you give them Python training courses to code, you allow them to start developing apps, analytics and APIs. But you can't do any of that until you culturally have absorbed that structure and direction. And so most banks I meet, the problem they have is that their executive leadership are people who are bankers and not technologists. You need to have a digital people on the executive leadership team. And I was actually blown away when I met BBVA when I was writing the case studies that half their executive leadership team were from a technology or telecommunications background. They had a head of customer data, a head of engineering, uh, obviously a CIO, but equally the CEO and the chairman had a background in technology and telecommunications. Half their executive team had some grounding in digital, and that's what makes the difference. Indeed, that's a completely different mentality shift. Absolutely. I mean, I had a couple of slides in my Banking Renaissance presentation that drives home this point, which is when we talk about fintech, I call it the parent-child relationship. Finance is the parent that wants stability and security and reliability and resilience, and tech is the child that wants to destroy everything and paint on the walls and kick everything and say, we'll change the world. And you need both these days. So if I walk into a bank's executive team and it's full of people like me who are gray-haired and wrinkled, I know it's the wrong team. But if I walk into a fintech and it's full of people who are very young and bright, but there's no gray hairs, that's also not going to work. You have to have a balance of both digital and uh, financial. You can't just have one without the other. The point I'm making is if I walk into you know, a Revlon or a Monzo and I don't see grey hair, then I know that they don't have the sage experience that can say there's going to be problems ahead. So right now we're going through a major challenge and a recessionary environment. And a lot of fintechs are laying employees off and some are actually going bust. And they've never been through this before, but that's because they're young and they're new. If they have some grey hairs on their executive team, they could tell them, I've seen this before, you know, this is how you manage it, this is what you have to do. And that's why you need the balance of both. There's a great comment from 
Jamie Dimon, which is in 2008, we, we had this massive financial crisis. You, you may remember, Elliot, because you look like you're old enough to remember it. Massive financial crisis and um, lots of banks going bust. And Jamie Dimon's daughter, um, Jamie Dimon, CEO of JP Morgan Chase, his daughter, who was, I think at the time, um, a, a teenager, said, Dad, what's a financial crisis? And he said, oh, something that happens about every seven years. Excellent point. The best of both worlds. I've been reading your your blogs for quite some time now. And I've noticed you write a lot about wealth inequality, ESG, and, and th- inclusion and things of that nature. And recently, you released a book called Digital for Good. These are mainly insights from other people in financial services on these topics. So I was wondering, from your point of view, how can finance and tech help these big issues like inequality, inclusion, and climate? Well, I, I worry that I'm becoming more radical the older I get, but it's not more radical. It's more that I want to leave my children with a better future. Actually, Digital for Good was inspired by walking into Alibaba's payments office, the Ant Group, which runs Alipay in China. And there's a poster on the wall of Jack Ma, and the words were in English, do good for society and good for the planet. And there's lots of things that Ant Group, Alipay, Alibaba do to encourage that. But one of the big innovations they made is the creation of Ant Forest, which is where every time you pay for something, it tracks whether and how eco-friendly that is and gives you points. And eventually your points create a prize. And the prize is the planting of a physical tree. And they've planted so many trees now that they've improved the um, environment of China um, so that carbon emissions are reduced by about 5% over the last five years, which is incredible. Um, Because 700 million people are playing this eco-friendly game. And I've seen this game replicated in other markets. So, for example, there's a bank in Finland that launched a payment ecosystem service using technology to look at how eco-friendly your life is and the more that you cycle or walk and buy things that are not plastic the more that they invest in the baltic sea environment to refresh the seas to make it more eco-friendly and support sustainable living for the fish in those seas Um, and they've actually now sold that white labeling it to over 100 million users worldwide So for me, this is a critical thing, which is if we can combine the way we live and the way we use money with technology, then we can make the world a much better place. And I spent a lot of time talking to Extinction Rebellion, who are a very active consumer group, but equally with uh, many of the pension funds, of which many are becoming active as well, and telling banks that if they invest in new fossil fuel projects, then they will stop putting pension funds into those banks as institutional investors. And Extinction Rebellion, for example, broke the windows of HSBC and Barclays Bank head office during their um, annual general meeting of their shareholders. And the judge let them off because he said, I understand this is activism. And when you talk to Extinction Rebellion, by way of example, they compare themselves to the suffragette movement that got women the vote 100 years ago. Women only got the vote because women became 
active in protesting the fact they didn't have the vote, including the famous incident of the lady on the race course who gave her life to get women the vote. And, you know, that's where Extinction Rebellion are saying, if we don't get banks to change the way they invest, and then from my perspective, combine that with how technology can make the investments better, we won't have a future for our planet. So, you know, it's it's a very long story, but cutting it short, the basics are that we can use technology and finance to make the world a better place. No, 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 that, 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 that's a good point. It's nice to see the shift to more of a stakeholder capitalism and away from uh, shareholder focus. Yeah, and that even that even resonates with bankers. And that uh, I mentioned Jamie Dimon once already, but you know, he delivered a document in November 2019 from the Business Roundtable saying we have to shift to stakeholder capitalism. We can't be just here for shareholders anymore. If I remember my banking history uh, correctly, hasn't Europe always been uh, more stakeholder focused than say, uh, like where I'm from, uh, the United States? Yeah, to to, to an extent. I mean, America is obviously what we would look at as probably the most capitalistic country in the world. And it's the most successful capitalistic country in the world. And it's difficult to make comparisons because Europe is a group of nations that are trying to come together, but are not quite a United States of Europe, particularly with Brexit <laughs> and some of the other things that are going on. Um, the African nations, and I travel there often, want to also have a cohesive group of nations that agree on laws, principles, finance and governance, but it's not going to happen. Southeast Asia is saying, uh, South America is saying, but China is not. So that's the reason why today we talk about this big friction between China and America, because China is one nation and America is one nation. The difference is that China has four times the population of America. And when you look at technologies coming out of China, they are far more advanced today than any other nation. When you look at artificial intelligence, robotics, any area of technology, I think China is leading the world. And this is a huge worry for America because basically having been the superpower for you know almost the last century, suddenly to be superseded is worrying. And when you look at China, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's an economy that's a dictatorship. It's not a dictatorship. It's actually many different um, states and areas that are working together in a consensus manner. And there are issues, you know, I'm not ignoring the fact that there's the Uyghur Muslims being subjugated by the state, but uh, I'm seriously intrigued by in the next 50 years where China will take us. I think it's going to lead us more than America. You just mentioned China is years ahead of the US in terms of technology. So what really excites you tech-wise besides Ant Forest? It's difficult because when you spend all your time living 10 years ahead of everyone else, you know, to try and work out what's going to be 20 years ahead is very hard. You know, right now, I'm still very interested in artificial intelligence, machine learning, and equally a lot of the stuff that you see in the movies like uh, Ex Machina in terms of robotics. But the biggest thing that excites me, uh, are when I narrow it down to what I'm looking at, which is money. And um, the theme of my next book, I've got to write it this summer, is basically the friction between decentralized versus centralized financial services and the friction between cryptocurrencies and central bank digital currencies. 
I've ended up calling it Hi-Fi um, or High Five, <laughs> which is hybrid finance. You know, you cannot have completely decentralized currency, even though we do have it with Bitcoin, because when you lose that money, there's no one accountable to get it back. And bear in mind that when we saw Sam Bankman fried or freed, some say, um, and FTX and Terra Luna and all the issues in crypto in the last 18 months, you know, that money is gone. But it's not that the cryptocurrency is gone. It's that the trading platforms of those currencies has gone. So I think a lot of people mistake decentralized cryptocurrency as being FTX or Mt. Gox or whatever you want to cite as a name, Binance. Those are not the currencies. Those are the, the platforms. So you need to understand the difference. But then if I do lose my money on those platforms, which effectively is like a bank, who can I call? You know, uh, you know, and that's the problem. So if you put your money in a bank and the bank goes bust, effectively that could be FTX or Binance or Terra Luna or whatever, you're, you have a federal guarantee from the government or an insurance guarantee that says the bank has to pay you back in Europe 100,000 euros. The FDIC, I think it's $250,000. You don't have that with any of the cryptocurrencies. So where I come from, and this is what excites me because I think it's fascinating seeing the development of our world, is the hybrid financial system, which says, yes, you can have decentralized cryptocurrency, but no, you cannot have it unless it's backed by a license. Thanks for sharing uh, that preview. I wasn't expecting something about uh, DeFi and crypto. I mean, I've had this argument for over 10 years between the libertarians and the, the statists, you know, libertarians say that I'm a statist and I'm not. And they say I'm a statist because I say you cannot have money without government. And they think when I say without government that I mean the Federal Reserve or the Bank of England or European Central Bank. What I actually mean is the government of the network, which could be the government of the citizens of the world. But you have to have a government. Otherwise, Where's the ability to get my money back? Yep, you have to be able to get your uh, money back. Having said that, would you say that crypto and DeFi are where the big opportunities are these days? Or are they uh, elsewhere? No, I, I mean, there's lots of other interesting stuff going on. As I mentioned, artificial intelligence, robotics, quantum computing, blockchain. But a lot of those things for me are speculative and a little bit far out, you know, Machine learning is probably the main thing I would look at right now if I was investing in something. But what what I'd want to do is create the brokerage between this hi-fi market, this hybrid finance market of decentralized and centralized. And I think that's where the biggest opportunity lies to say, if I can create something that can be trusted and licensed and structured in a way that everybody believes works, whether that be governed by the network of citizens or the network of governments, that's a huge opportunity. I guess you have the ideas and the access, so uh, why not just go and uh, do it? Because uh, I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I just like writing and, and thinking. I am a doer. I'm involved in quite a lot of fintech startups uh, as a mentor or on the executive team, and that's all well and good. But I'm waiting for someone to turn to me one day, and I, I don't know why they haven't, and just say, Chris, invent that idea. Here's a million euro. 
<laughs> oh, really? That really hasn't happened yet? No, I'm waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually pretty shocking. In fact, it's probably one of the most surprising things uh, I've heard here today. <laughs> I would have totally thought that by now with your, you know, your tenure pedigree uh, in financial services, that someone had thrown you like, you know, a couple of million, which isn't like that much money in the grand scheme of things to implement some of your ideas. I'm not going to give it away, but I actually met a company really, really interesting at Banking Renaissance who are doing something around the idea that I've just articulated. So um, watch that space. Okay. 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 Speaking of the banking renaissance, what would your takeaways from the conference be? I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's not often that I get together with all of my best friends. So, you know, they managed to get Jim Maroos, Brett King, Palacerone, Matteo Rizzi, Duena Blonstrom, you know, all of us folks who've been around this area for a long time in one room, which was fantastic. So thoroughly recommend it. I'm looking forward to the next one. We've had Jim on here too, and that's exactly what he said, like verbatim. Uh, Paolo too. It's good to be in the same place and time, you know, with with all your friends. That's really nice about this, uh, the Banking Renaissance Conference, that you could all meet each other face to face. Anyway, we're going to end on this note. So Chris, it was a pleasure having you, and we wish you all the best. Very good to chat and look forward to the next time. You've just been listening to PayTech Talk, the podcast about payments. Today's guest was Chris Skinner. PayTech Talk is brought to you by Cognito Amsterdam. Thanks for listening.